0: My name is Jan Jansen. I live in Wisconsin. I work in a lumber yard there. The people I meet as they say, What's your name? I say, My name is Jan Jansen. I live in Wisconsin. A
1: 1955 television commercial for an unfiltered cigarette brand called Pall Mall.
2: Over, under, around, and through. Pall Mall travels pleasure to you. Pall Mall's natural mildness. Is friendly to your taste.
1: Yes, 2004, one of many Kurt Vonnegut appearances before college student audiences. Here's the big news. I am suing
2: Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company of Louisville, Kentucky, for billions, I hope. And though you lawyers here, those in law school, will be interested in this case, I think. I have never smoked anything but Paul Malt since I was 11 years old. This is a Brown and Williamson product. On their package for several years now, they've promised to kill me, but I'm still alive. (laughs) Eighty-one years old. Thanks a lot, you dirty rats. The last thing I ever wanted was to be alive when the three most important, most powerful people on the face of the earth were named Bush, Dick, and Colin.
1: 1999, Kurt Vonnegut is interviewed on The Charlie Rose Show.
2: Kurt Vonnegut
3: forever changed the landscape of American fiction with books like Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast of Champions. His most recent novel, Timequake, was said to be his last, but there was still unpublished material out there. Bagambo Snuffbox is a collection of the short fiction Vonnegut wrote before he started writing novels written in the 1950s and 60s for magazines like the Saturday Evening Post and Atlantic Monthly. They are relics of a time before television. They are also a harbinger of the literary genius that was to come. And we have that literary genius with us. Please welcome Kurt Vonnegut. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, what are you doing? You're going back and getting stuff. No, well, that the, you write yeah, for magazines. But, but, I mean, we want new stuff from you, not old stuff. Well,
2: yeah, if you want good
3: stuff and not crap, too, right?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, Well, who wouldn't? No, it's, I never thought I'd amount to a hill of beans. In 1965, when I went to work for the Writer's Workshop in yeah. Iowa, I was completely out of print. Yeah. Now I'm completely in print, including my earliest stories.
0: April. 2007. Kurt Vonnegut, age 84, descends the steep concrete steps of his brownstone home on 37th Street in Manhattan at approximately 2 p.m. He has done this walk twice daily with his little dog, Flower. Though he had walked Flower a thousand times before, somehow Flower's leash gets wrapped around the old man's legs, causing him to fall, his head crashing into the stone banister. Vonnegut's freak accident was immediately reported by neighbors, and an ambulance was called. Despite the best efforts of doctors, Vonnegut's head injuries were simply too severe to repair. He died on April 11, 2007.
1: True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy.
3: Celebrity gossip.
1: Murder. UFOs.
3: Crooked
2: officials. The occult. Assassination.
3: Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate
4: scams. Scandal
2: Sheet!
4: Hello everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, and today, on the occasion of a big-budget theatrical documentary released at the end of last year, we look back on the life and literary career of one of the most successful authors in modern publishing history, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. But for whatever reason... His one time enormous fame seems to be receding into obscurity. Today, we look at why. To help us unravel this mystery, I am pleased to welcome back my co founding Scandal Sheet co host, Kasia, for a one off return appearance. Welcome back, Cassia.
0: Hello, thank you for having me back. <laughs>
4: Kassi, you've also brought a guest with you today. Would you like to provide an introduction for us and our listeners?
0: Yes, I would. I have brought with me a, a refugee from the planet Trafalmador. <laughs> His human name is Dylan. And I think he can provide an interesting perspective on the works of Kurt Vonnegut.
5: Am I as unstuck in time as Billy Pilgrim is? Is that why?
0: You're probably more so. <laughs>
5: yeah that's probably just true.
0: kidding he's my boyfriend and he was desperate to be included in this conversation yay <laughs>
4: hey. i'm really excited to be here <laughs> well and, and i think you mentioned you have a podcast of your own you want to go ahead and plug that for us for our audience
5: yeah i got a movie called the great movies podcast um not the best seo but that was the book of the roger ebert um that's the title of the book and that's the book we go through we review all the movies through and we're about halfway through book one so that's um 60 episodes 50 or 60 movies so far um hopefully we'll finish up the book at some point
4: wow it's sort of like a parallel to that that movie where the girl tries to cook all uh julian oh, julia yeah yeah
0: that's a yeah. great
5: movie that's an all-time fave
0: a, f- a favorite Dylan but you're kind movie. of
5: doing the same thing with ebert right exactly it's exactly
0: Dylan <laughs> and roger
5: yeah truly so I don't know what, what what the version of beef Bourgognon is with Roger Ebert. You know
4: his review of you know Saving Private. What Ryan is the or beef something.
0: Bourgognon?
5: <laughs> it's probably E. T. Um, ah, his, ah okay. his E. T. Review was a letter pen to his grandchildren about the first time he watched it with them. That was like huh. the grand big huh. review. That was like I remembered that. Like it, it was just it, it's a legendary review from that book. Huh. Okay, and of course, we are also joined by our brilliant
4: artificial intelligence engine, Bernice.
6: Thank you. So, Kasia, why did you agree to come back for this? I thought you had made a clean escape. Good question, Bernice. Um, Well, as you know, I was going
0: through a little bit of a PR crisis uh, with all this sexual harassment allegations against me. The litigation has been concluded. My accusers were disproven, and I am now ready to mix with polite society again.
4: (laughs) Okay, well, thanks for that, Bernice and Cassia. So, Bernice, just to help our audience out a little, can you give us a very brief review on the unusual life and career of Kurt Vonnegut?
6: May I remind you, you still owe me money for the last episode. Mr. Halkley?
4: I know, I know. I have a
6: little cash flow
4: crunch going on here, Bernice. Can we just proceed? I promise to catch up with you.
6: You better. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. was an American writer known for his satirical and darkly humorous novels. In a career spanning over 50 years, he published 14 novels, three short story collections, five plays, and five non-fiction works. Beginning in 1969, almost all his books appeared on the New York Times bestseller list for significant amounts of time. Three of his books were made into Hollywood motion pictures. Further collections have been published after his death. Vonnegut was born into a wealthy Indianapolis family in 1922. However, the family lost their fortune during the Great Depression. Vonnegut's journey from wealth to poverty combined with his army service in World War II profoundly shaped his worldview and his writing.
4: Cassian and Dylan, the subject today is Kurt Vonnegut. And he passed away in 2007 at the age of 84. And at the time of his death, he still had at least one book on the New York Times bestseller list. And in his in his whole lifetime, he had accumulated book sales numbers only exceeded by like the Holy Bible, and later by J.K. Rowling and Dan Brown, who came into the publishing scene much later than him, but. I guess my point is that today, only 15 years after his death, it seems he has almost entirely disappeared from popular view. So why did you guys agree to collaborate on this episode?
0: Uh, Either of you, please proceed. Yeah, Dylan, do you agree that he has entirely disappeared from popular view? Well,
1: Well, that, that would
5: be a question, too. This is my perception. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my perception of it is no. Um Okay. but I have a very limited worldview it's not like I'm like strong in the literary circles or anything but I could say we and you bring up later on your notes for today that uh, this also goes along with like catch 22 Joseph Heller was another um, right. similar book out at the time and I yep. was in a book club in college with uh, some friends and family and we picked both slaughterhouse 5 and catch 22 neither of which were my suggestions. And because people still were interested in reading them, so I, I at least see it still be brought up as something to be uh, read and appreciated even nowadays.
4: Was that recently? Are you that was within the was... past
5: couple of years. Yeah.
4: Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going by things like, and it's not like I'm like hanging around with with people your age constantly, but. But I'm like buddies with all the people that work at Starbucks and stuff like that. And when I say, <laughs> "Oh, what are you doing? What's your next episode, Thad? Yeah, we're doing something on Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt who? And you know, Ooh. these are like
5: <laughs> oh. these are like graduate students at George Mason University. they Because that's all so, the only explanation.
0: <laughs> they are orphans. They are fatherless. It's, a, it's it. an if it, it's the Starbucks orphanage. I don't know. <laughs> do you do know, those. it's
4: not a fair focus group because it wasn't randomly selected. But uh, I don't know.
1: My name is Jan Jansen. I live in Wisconsin. I work in a lumber yard there. The people I meet as they say what's your name?" I say, my name is Jan Jansen I live in Wisconsin. Uh. Yeah I,
0: I was surprised to see you uh, assert that in the rundown that he oh, really? disappeared from view. I definitely think that his popularity has fallen <laughs> since like in 2007 I remember you you walked into a borders like the day after he died. And Every Kurt Vonnegut was, was everywhere. Every yeah. single, I mean, it, there yep. was like a whole table. There was a picture. There was a stand. And people were just like beside themselves. Um, and I think that especially because so much of his work near the end was timely. And it had like a quasi-journalistic thing. And he really came out mm. against the Bush administration in Man Without a Country and stuff. Yep. That, that he might have dated himself. Near the end of his life, as opposed weird to, like, to think... moving to a more transcendent plane, which he he made a choice to like pivot a little bit. Um, so that. Well, and those outflow, those early
4: books, I think you you can read them. I mean, I having just reviewed them in the past few weeks. Yeah, um, they are kind of transcendent. I mean, Cats Cradle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the early Titan, the
0: early ones, but post Piano. Slaughterhouse. He changed direction. Yeah, and he started writing more essays. And his last book was a collection. He's gotten of stuck in oh, time. Yeah, I was yeah, man it without was. a country. Uh, so he may have done it to himself a little bit. But I, I, yeah, <laughs> he got stuck. Well, that. And, and,
4: and, and, and as we said up front, the. One of the inspirations to even pick this up was because Netflix or whoever funded that documentary. It was released theatrically back in December. I did it. You know, 2021. Uh, I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch it, but I mean. I
0: I watched it the other day. It was like 25 years
4: Mm -hmm. in the making. It's made by the guy who was the producer for Curb Your Enthusiasm and a bunch of other things. So it wasn't like some tiny little student film. Uh, it may have started off that way, but now, you know, so somebody may be calcul- some marketing guy at a studio level, you know, and Netflix or whoever was behind it made a decision to do it. So I guess maybe I'm just wrong. Some, you know, somebody thought it was, I don't know what its <laughs> numbers are doing. I, I don't have access to that information, but it does yeah. confirm that there is some interest. So maybe I am wrong.
0: I think that he still is That certain books are enduring. Slaughterhouse Five being one. Yeah, of Yeah, we them. did see that I at Birds and Noble's just the other week. Every ago. time, every uh, library in America has a banned books table, and Slaughterhouse Five <laughs> will always be on it. Hmm. Yeah, the banned I mean, it's books
4: just, table. Okay. They
0: love. They love their banned mm-hmm. books.
4: <laughs> That's okay. I was going to put a section in this rundown which I, I didn't about the book burnings. You know, because yeah, it got, no, no. Uh,
0: you should do an entire episode about the phenomenon of banned books and then the kind of like the most buttoned up people yeah. in our society, the most officially sanctioned credentialed people there's nothing they love more than reading banned books and like embracing rebellion in this really safe sort of way, so I could really go on an entire rant about just that well one that's subject.
4: that's actually actually a good idea because I was like going through. You know, he did two what he calls autobiographical collages, one in the eighties and one in the nineties, yeah. and the one in the nineties was when all the you know, the book burning occurred in the eighties. And it wasn't like just him, it was Judy Bloom books. Good
0: lord. <laughs> she's a she's a sexual pervert.
4: I I guess so. I guess so. She's just like Jenna Jameson, you know. Woo! Um, <laughs> uh. Hey guys, so I don't where, know where to start. Actually, in a fifty-seven year, fifty-seven year freelance writing career, that initially languished in relative obscurity between nineteen fifty, you know, when he left General Electric to be a full-time writer, to the publication of his first hit novel, Slaughterhouse Five in nineteen sixty-nine. In in those years, he wrote almost 100 hundred published short stories in in what was then uh, big-time magazines, and five well-reviewed but very financially tepid novels prior to Slaughterhouse-Five. So, I mean, where do you guys recommend we start?
0: I think a good place to start is, like, what was your introduction to Kurt Vonnegut? Sure. Uh, Okay. Because you are my dad and you are my introduction to Kurt Vonnegut. (laughs) And well, you want
4: my introduction experience. or your introduction?
0: No, let's start with you.
4: Okay, well my introduction to Kurt Vonnegut was in uh, what was called at the time middle school or junior high school and it was it wasn't part of the curriculum but some of my friends were reading because the at this time you know Breakfast of Champions had come out. Uh, two or three years earlier. I'm a seventh grader at this point. I'm an eighth grader something like that. And it, so it was a dog-eared copy. And said hey, man, you got to read this. So that was the first book I read. I had never heard of a guy. I, uh, You know, I was so busy reading The Lord of the Rings and Tarzan books by Edgar Rice Burroughs and other science fiction type things. And then someone said, hey, look at this. And that blew me away. And then that's what led me to the other books through that one. So I can't remember the first one that I shared with you. Was it that one or Slaughterhouse?
0: It was Breakfast of Champions.
4: Okay was was that a hook in the mouth?
0: Um yeah, I think it was cuz I'm sure that you as you do when you Introduce me to anything. You deliver like a 10-minute impassioned monologue about why it's the greatest thing that I was ever a
4: 17-year-old, a 17-year salesperson, corporate salesperson. <laughs> sure, in but I was
0: also like, I probably was in like the fourth or fifth grade. So you were just like really, like people, most people when they talk about their uh, Kurt Vonnegut relationship, it begins in high school or thereabouts.
4: Right. Or college even, And right?
0: mine was like, no, like it was like from Barney to Sirens of Tartan, T- Titan. <laughs> um, it was like...
4: <laughs> well, it wasn't just that, though, right? I mean, it was also like uh, Bergman with subtitles or Famini. Sure, sure, sure. And, sure. and I there never succeeded in getting you to watch um, 2001 by Kubrick.
0: No, never. I always felt like so. <laughs> um, oh, and I still do, still do to this day. Um, but I think that Breakfast of Champions, because of the... Prominent illustrations. It looks like a book for children, right? Mm-hmm. And Kurt Vonnegut does write in a childlike manner.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: His style is very simple. Yeah. And so it it kind of is a good book. It's for adults, but it's like it's an adult book that a kid could read and pretty much understand, uh, at least on a basic level. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. I definitely liked the idea of reading Breakfast of, of Champions because of the build up that you had given it and it felt good to read like an important grown up book when other kids were like reading whatever was at the Scholastic Book Fair. Jesus <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Dylan, and I what was, was like your reading first this book? I'm sorry, go ahead. With you know genitalia and like there's some uh, weird illustrations in that book, desecrating the myth of America yeah. and whatnot. Yep, uh, I'm sure a lot of it went girls' over underpants,
5: my head. split beaver, mm-hmm.
0: exactly,
4: there's <laughs> the X-rated the stuff, man. <laughs> you know, I could almost uh, see why they burned it. But um.
0: <laughs> and then I think I just read more of them because you had so many of them on yeah. your bookshelves. <laughs> right. Like we can see a bookshelf in the. Right part of your screen right now, the listeners can't, but it's I can. It's still yeah, and I'm and there are Kurt Vonnegut books on that shelf that I could probably find in an instant because I know them that well. And you had like <laughs> Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Kurt Vonnegut, the so boys. that's what I read. The boys that was there,
4: <laughs> all the boys. So Dylan,
5: what about what was your first exposure to Vonnegut? Um, my dad didn't get me started as early as you did with Cassia, but he, I think he started me in seventh grade and he, he like pushed Slaughterhouse-Five for me. Okay.
4: Well, that would be like me then. Okay. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I probably got started around your sort of age and, um, kind of like Cassia was describing, it was one of these things where the, the prose is whimsical maybe enough. Like he's very like, so it goes, you know? Um, with a lot of how we will approach things. And, you know, there was the pictures in Slaughterhouse-Five 2, and I was like, well, I could read this, and I could sound smart by reading it. And quite a lot of my grade school years was, I'm going to watch this movie or this book because it'll make me (laughs) sound smart. That's how a lot of this got started. So Vonnegut was right up that alley of uh, interesting and um, accessible and um, cool as far as I thought cool was at the time, right? And the thing is was, it the just copy seems you so. Read, Dylan? Yep, that's the cop. That's my middle school copy.
0: I he, borrowed this from him. <laughs> you <laughs> know the stuff that we
5: were being asked to read in
4: school in seventh or eighth grade. we were reading, I like, remember what I was reading. Gatsby. It was the Dollhouse
5: Murders. I had to read that couple times okay, for a no, single I don't class. That one, but
4: but but you know,
5: Moby Dick. Um, no. Hey,
0: don't, don't talk shit on Moby Dick.
4: Don't talk shit on Moby Dick. I'm not talking shit on Moby Dick. I'm just saying that this stuff was so different. Yeah. You know, it was just so amazing than Wuthering Heights or whatever, which I love Wuthering Heights. But it was just like, come on. This was just like pictures of assholes
1: <laughs> with a black
4: felt pen. <laughs> <laughs> and then the author walks into the book.
5: That I mean, part blew me away. I like, <laughs> like, like I, That was when I was like, I love reading.
4: Blew my he- head off. Yeah. Blew my head off. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, you said earlier, Kasi, that that, that slaughterhouse House, because like his first five books or novels, I mean, he wrote so many short stories, but even uh, a lot of those short stories, even though they had – uh, unconventional subject matter like the, you know, the Barnstable, reporting the Barnstable thing or the the thing where everybody had to have handicaps so they were all equal and stuff like that. They were written in a very conventional sort of a literary fashion. So, and
6: yeah. then
4: his very first novel, Player Piano, when you read that, it's like just straight ahead, you know, right out of the English department kind of fiction writing. And then he gets progressively more wacko or whatever (laughs) metafiction Mm -hmm. or something like that and then you get to you know he goes to the Iowa Writers Workshop he's invited to be a teacher there and last minute
0: last last minute minute. and he pretty much has to do it because he's
4: broke and he's got six kids and almost I mean uh, God bless you, yep. Mr. Rosewater had just come out. But all of his other stuff is pretty much out of print. So he pretty much has to And And Yeah,
0: none of the other faculty had read a word of him. <laughs>
4: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although he had this sort of – apparently had this uh, sort of slow-build cult status in this – And he this. didn't have
0: a college degree.
4: and he, <laughs> Not yet. I mean, during while he not was there, yet. he finally and nailed he tried- that –
0: no, he tried finally to get nailed one. Uh, they, the
4: degree at uh, Chicago. No,
0: they turned it down.
4: No, <laughs> I, I thought he got Cat's Cradle to be his um, thesis while the three years he was there.
0: No, he tried to get his University of Chicago uh, anthropology. Um, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Thesis to be he wrote this um, thing which he turned into a popular lecture which Dylan you and I watched about stories. Cinderella Handy. Where he maps yes, he maps the graph of different stories. And they rejected that that. they rejected it. He wrote that while at Iowa. I think it it came later that he finally got the degree.
4: Okay, Um, so so he never I thought and I think he lied, didn't his his biographer say he lied on his application? Which enabled him to get the job. Yes, they didn't, they
0: didn't, that was at General Electric. Okay. Yeah, he lied to get that job. I think his his brother worked there. His brother was a renowned scientist.
4: (laughs) He was, he was. So, but... Still, like, he, he was working on Slot Office 5 while he was at the Iowa Workshop. The first time he was really hanging out with other famous authors. And, of course, he was getting feedback from all these young people and stuff like that. And that probably, you know, Feedback the wasn't more. the
0: only thing he was getting from the
4: young people. Uh,
1: oh! Oh!
4: And he was making deposits uh, <laughs> of his own. Anyways. Didn't. <laughs> But, anyways, Cassie, can you give our audience for the people that don't know what is the book Slaughterhouse Five? I mean, what what is the plot? Where did it come from? Blah blah blah. Whatever you want to say.
0: Yes. So and Dylan, you jump in, in, my... in too.
4: But I, you know, I think I sort of threw this ball at her two weeks. Cassie
5: read it all last night. She'll do it better than I. can. I
0: think. did. I read the whole book in one sitting last night. Oh my god. Um. Slaughterhouse-Five, in my view, is Kerouac's Vonnegut's attempt to reconcile himself to life's tragedies. And he does this through the telling of the story of one man's life from birth to death, but not in that order. <laughs> so the man, is, <laughs> the man is Billy Pilgrim, an American soldier in World War II who was very... Early in his deployment, uh, taken by the German army as a prisoner of war. Um, Not so loosely based was. on
4: Kurt Vonnegut himself, correct? Exactly,
0: just like Vonnegut was.
4: Private first class, um, six foot two tall, Battle of moron, the Burge. blah, blah,
0: blah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what distinguishes this from many other autobiographical accounts of the World War Two experience. Somewhere in there, Billy gets abducted by a flying saucer and is introduced to a race <laughs> of aliens who encourage him to escape existential paralysis by living in the moment and betting a porn star <laughs> who has also been abducted.
4: <laughs> I love the porn star part, yeah. That's nice. Nice touch.
0: What is it, Montana Montana's. Wild Pack? Which I learned from... Our beloved Charles Shields, who wrote the biography of Kurt Vonnegut, was based on his affair that he had at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. The right. Character.
4: Yeah, I forget her name. Yeah. And then played by Valerie Perrine Laurie. in the movie.
0: I've never seen the movie. Neither one. Okay, well,
4: um, she was a, uh, extremely, I mean, she was considered a good actress, but also very <laughs> uh, sexy ingenue type person.
0: As she should be. But, yeah, I think, so, he he worked on this for, right, 24 years?
4: So he started number? working on it right when he left the Army, and then he didn't come out with it until 1969. So, yeah, 24 years.
0: Right, yeah. so it's, like, uh, it's important to know that this is his pinnacle. Like, a lot of people who start out writing, they have, like, their book that's their genius book. It's their brass ring that they're reaching towards. And Vonnegut took a lot longer than he thought it would take him to kind of surmount this. And he wrote, uh, and they do a great job of showing this in the documentary that came out last year, of how much he worked on it. How many, Billy Pilgrim had like 50 different names. He right. tried so many different ways to tell the story uh, before he landed on this one. Right. So the fact that uh, his, own es- his own estimation of what, like, his important story to tell in life was actually ended up being his classic book is kind of amazing because I don't think that happens for most writers. I think most writers are like, I'm going to write about whatever and then that's just garbage and then they end up writing something great about some other topic. And I actually almost like the
4: introduction of the book as much as the rest of the book because he kind of talks about that journey and then he has that big uh, drunken meeting with his buddy from dresden who's still alive and his wife is the one that comes in and says you're full of fucking shit you're gonna do a john wayne kind of a thing here right and talks him off the ledge or at least he attributes it to her Mm -hmm.
0: right and i don't know if that's kind of his it's it's his spin (laughs) i think yeah Yeah. i think it's his like that was his Smart you could see from his
4: earlier books, he wasn't he exactly Mr. Establishment. I don't think he would have cast John Wayne in anything. But
0: <laughs> yeah, and again, I read um, Report on the Barnhouse Effect, which was okay, his first right. published short story, right. um, which is a story about the atomic bomb, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. his take on World War II. It's a it's like Slaughterhouse-Five in a much more concise, conventional format.
4: Well, and Cats Cradle, of course, that's his, which like, is you know about totally the creator of the atomic bomb who creates Ice Nine and then eventually destroys the world. I mean, this guy is not an optimist. <laughs> he's he's not a pro-establishment dude. So, so, anyways, I, um, Dylan, what did you think?
5: Did you read Breakfast of Champions first or Slardos Five? Slaughterhouse-Five, and I think that I did Cat's Cradle, because that's my dad's other favorite. Then I did right. Sirens of Titan. Then I did either Galapagos or Breakfast of Champions. Breakfast of Champions was kind of like the final big one I got to, and it is my favorite by, by some distance. Oh, really? Yeah. That's the one that's really um, stuck around in my mind for me, and I think is the best use of his um, absurdist and... Um, like human character-driven um, themes and stories.
4: Okay, well, we'll that's let's a very get
0: to... interesting take on Breakfast of Champions.
4: Well, really. let's get to okay. Let's stick with this for now. I don't know how we can jungle this up later, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah we'll stick one let's at stick with Slaro's Pod <laughs> because there's there's a bunch of other things that can be dis- described here. You know, and part of it is you know the so for that 19 years that he was writing for these like mainstream uh middle-aged people magazines and before TV really really caught on stuff like Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post and Atlantic Monthly those were really good markets and and as he says, said as his autobiographer says you know he was making 2 3000 bucks a pop you know he was making a decent living doing these things but that dry, television, it wasn't overnight, eventually dried that stuff up. And so that's when he, um, you know, his publishers were going, hey, man, got to start thinking of, you know, novels and stuff like that. Before he
0: started teaching.
4: before he star- Even before he started teaching, right, right. I mean, he had he had that one experience early on with player piano, which uh, did not sell well, and he only got like a $3,000 advance and whatever. And he's like, this is bullshit, man. That took me like a year to write. I can write a short story in a, in a weekend, you know, and make mm-hmm. 3000 bucks. So, but I, I guess part of it is the, so for some reason, you know, and he probably wasn't aware of it when he was teaching, or at least nobody seems to capture it, including himself. But, you know, this, this stuff started catching on. He his, his audience was shifting from these middle-aged people you know, reading the Saturday evening post, you know, uh, who am I this time? That really cute story. Um, um, and then they embrace him, you know, and this is in 1965. He's on his way to the IS workshop and he's working on Sardis five, all younger people. He didn't think that they were his audience. They embrace him. And, and, and how come? Was it because the Vietnam War was going on because science fiction was sort of rising in mainstream popularity or just in general that he was kind of had this kind of anti-establishment vibe? I mean, what do you guys think? Because you're not that much older than those people were at the time when he started becoming
5: popular. I think a lot of it is to do with sort of the Vietnam War and the the counter War thing um, and sort of this – you know, in, it's an incredibly pessimistic vibe that, like, a lot of the younger people had towards the government and towards society at the time, and I think that's what kind of contributed to, like, oh, look at this guy who thinks everything is absurd, just like us. Um, And I think that was the big part of it, of why, like, the younger crowd was the ones to gravitate, gravitate to him 1st Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think he did a really smart job of, uh, integrating the Green Beret son of Billy Pilgrim, who's fighting in the Vietnam War, into Slaughterhouse-Five mm-hmm. to make the connection between World War II and the, the current crisis at the time. Um, and uh, they do a great job in the biography of showing how surprised he is when this happens. I mean, it wasn't really something that he was an architect of, Right? It just sort of happened to him. Like it wasn't his publisher or his agent who kind of figured it out. It kind of just happened without him knowing it. And people would start showing up to his house and ended up staying a couple days, <laughs> just like sleeping in a closet, just like young hippies who were into Kurt Vonnegut. And um, I think part of the reason is because he does have a very childlike attitude and part of it might be because he only ever had a real job for like two years which he got in large part honestly because of his brother
4: right general electric and then and then yeah he so
0: he worked he worked to general electric basically walking around being like hey tell me about this machine i'll write an article about it and then um he was like as soon as he sold a couple short stories, he's like, "Hey, let's move to Cape Cod." I mean, he lived a very whimsical life. His whole life is like completely fanciful. It shouldn't be. No one would tell their child to do this—to move <laughs> to Cape Cod with a bunch of kids and the wife doesn't work and you just. Well, that's write the other magazines. part of it, right?
4: The reality was the having the six kids adopting the three kids of his of his deceased uh sister and her well that yeah that i mean all, i mean we didn't even later. have time to get into that he but didn't I mean, know
0: he didn't know that the three kids would be his own
4: would well, that have but, stopped him
0: no probably not well but it didn't he, stop him he, he I mean, that very... would have
4: stopped me six kids would have stopped well it did stop one kid stopped me <laughs> for 10 years
0: (laughs) six kids i probably
4: would have committed suicide
0: which he tried to
4: which Uh, he tried to but that was much when they were all grown up much later sure
0: but um on one of the books you have actually on that shelf to the right of you from my view dad uh there's a a quote a blurb about kurt vonnegut where they describe him as a cynic desperate to believe and I don't I th- I don't think he's that cynical. I think he's a, he's very much like a wounded idealist, which I guess all cynics mm-hmm. are on some level. But he he lived a very idealistic life. I mean, he really pursued his one goal, which was mm-hmm. to be a writer. Um and, and he spent his whole life just like making up crazy stories and being impolite. Um <laughs>
5: that's a great dig
0: I'm not digging (laughs) but I think that children or kids or teenagers uh, relate to that Mm -hmm. because he really never stopped caring about the things you care about when you're 14 and you're like what's the meaning of life or like oh man why are we killing these people in war you know we're all the same The people in Germany, uh, they also love their children and their pets and whatnot, you know. And uh, when people become adults and they go into the, the, you know, they move along the conveyor belt and they do what they should. They get their college degree and they work an appropriate job. That kind of stuff gets worn, worn down or you stop caring about it because you're forced to or because you don't want to care about it anymore. I'm not saying one or the other. But Kurt Vonnegut never really did that he constructed a life for himself where he never had to do that. And his wife took care of all of the uh, messy parts for him. And he could just live in his shed and come up with his science fictional universes. And so, yeah, he was able to live as an eternal child. He was, he had the Peter Pan life. And so I think kids like that. Um, And there's a great description in the biography of, um, uh i think the the information must have come from one of the kids probably ed who he had like a special relationship with where she always felt like she was pretend she had to pretend to be a kid and he had to pretend to be an adult but they had a secret between them and it was all just like a joke you know and they were just kind of <laughs> like hey hey we got to do like oh you're a kid i'm an adult but like really We're the same. Like, I'm only a few years older than you in the scope of all time. Like, we're basically the same. I'm not really your parent. You're not really my kid. Like, we're just two idiots here on Earth. And I think that's the vibe you get from his books. And that's why people identify so much with him in young adulthood.
5: That's a great point.
4: If this book was not published in 1969 and was instead published today... In 2022, would it be received by the same demographic and critics and readers in the same way?
5: Um, I would say yes, but I would say if it's being published now, it would be a different language, if that makes any sense. Like, the, the way what they, language? I don't know, more could like.
4: I mean, with the people here
5: or something yeah, like,
4: well, I mean, the, the, the veterans of the I mean, so he published it in the midst, even though he was a World War Two veteran, um, you know, he publishes in the midst of the Vietnam War. And then if he had published it in the midst of the Iraqi War, the Afghan War, the Syrian War, whatever the fucking war was, you know, would those young people have embraced it the same way? Like, what I'm asking I would say you
0: I would say absolutely not because okay. the nature of warfare has considerably evolved since mm-hmm. the Vietnam War. Okay. So the wars we wage today are drone wars and our own sons and daughters don't have to go fight them. Mm. Right? And that's really what what was the kernel of rage about the Vietnam War. It was like, I don't want to go. Like these people were like, I don't want to go do that. I don't want to sure. die. And you don't really have to do that anymore. They're just going to drop a bunch of bombs on Syria from a trailer in Arizona.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, you know, that's a, that's a really good point because um, uh, Sokassia knows that her grandfather uh, was a World War II veteran, although he was never shipped overseas. Everything ended before he the Germans um, uh, surrendered... Um, when he got out of basic training, he was supposed to go to Japan, but then they dropped the bomb. So he never had to really actually go anywhere. But so many of his contemporaries, though, um, who I knew, you know, I knew the people that came to our house and, and his older brothers uh, and, and so many other people they, who had been in World War II actually saw action in Europe. They saw that war I mean, this was always my perception as a, from a little kid as a very just war. And they were Ugh. proud of their service. Now, they didn't, you know, mm-hmm. they they were just, you know, in the trenches. And, and some of them were even in the Battle of the Bulge. But, you know, they were fighting a guy and they were shooting into the bushes a mile away. You know, they didn't witness what Vonnegut witnessed, the firebombing of Dresden, which is one of. You know the world class atrocities In known history right So that must have shaped his View but I mean that Is kind of a different thing is that He walks out of World War II saying Oh my god 130,000 people in two Hours you know just like, mm-hmm. Versus you know you know what a guy Who was just you know lucky enough To just kind of just be rolling down the Road and the Germans were running You know so um, I don't know did that is that like makes him different than like the regular guy of his generation?
0: Yeah, make- absolutely. Because okay. he, it, this is not. It's actually, it's almost a Trojan horse, like in that it's a World War II book that is actually like what the Americans did was bad, which yeah. is not a. That's not the conventional. No. Point.
4: No, no, my World my dad would watch all these movies, you know, all these World War II movies in the '70s, like The Longest Day, and the you know, all this stuff him. was just like, you know, and I li- and he would say, Thad, come watch this movie. Oh man, we were awesome. Woo! You know, <laughs> like, it was, it was the, you know, it was the uh, triumph of the 20th century, and mm. nothing bad right. about it. Nobody ever told me about Dresden until that read. I read that book. I never yeah. heard about it in a history class.
0: Yeah, no, it's not a, it's not a point that's really emphasized. You, you hear more about the Holocaust than you hear about the actual military maneuvers. You hear yeah, about D-Day, right. you hear right. about the Holocaust. Um, okay, but another point I wanted to say about yeah. is rea- people's reaction to it if it was published in 2022. Yeah. Okay, the women thing, <laughs> I think, would be a huge impediment. To it being well received today,
5: yeah,
4: hugely. The fact that he treats women like shit, or they're just nice. Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily have it. Like, I don't hold it against him. Like he's a product of his generation. He's like a 1950s upper middle class Midwestern boy. Um, but like, you read this book, and there are no real female characters <laughs> whatsoever. There's and even is the drawing of the.
4: Not until Bluebeard. Yeah, exactly. Did you guys read Bluebeard? I have that, not
0: read Bluebeard. Blue, I did that's read his Bluebeard. first.
4: Yeah. Okay. I love Blue. That is my third favorite book of his. That's up there um, for
5: me as well. That's an interesting. Really? Book. Okay.
4: Awesome. So me and Dylan are buds. Um, yeah. So I'm going to set aside <laughs> my shotgun. I'm not going to polish it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, there. That woman is a fee, is a real female character.
0: Sure, but he himself acknowledged this weakness in his writing. He did. Really, he, he wasn't, really, he wasn't really able to write about women other than being, like, beautiful or ugly or having any motivation, any right. motivations <laughs> that weren't, like, male-driven yeah. or family-driven. Nope.
4: No, it's true. He really uh-huh. gives them the short shrift. And then, unfortunately... Go ahead. This book Sorry. goes
0: out of it. It could just be a book about war. I mean, if you just had a book about... In Dresden. You wouldn't even need to bring in women at all. But it's about his wife. Right? And it's about Montana, it's about Montana. Wild Hack. Yeah, it's all about Montana. Um, so,
5: Remind me, does she feature more in the book than his wife, Billy Pilgrim's wife does? I don't think so. Okay. I was just curious.
0: I don't think she features more. But, okay. Uh, if you read the autobiography.
4: Well, wait a minute. Does she... Does his wife commit suicide like his mother did? I can't remember.
0: No, his wife, what, what do you mean? His first wife, Jane? Billy,
4: Billy, Billy Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's wife. wife.
0: No, she dies. Oh, she, she dies, just he, dies, he, okay. He knows that they're both going to die because he's, he's had the benefit because he's, yeah, because
4: of time Yeah, because he's in traveled. the endless yeah. loop. Yeah, right, right. But, but the wife of Dwayne Hooper in Breakfast of Champions does kill herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, eating Drano or something. Yeah. Which which would be similar to his mother on Mother's Day. Sure. The day before he left for the war.
0: Thanks, Ouch, yeah.
4: Ouch babe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, one other thing, Casa, you mentioned way a long time ago. You mentioned the connection between... Because it's a World War II novel, and it's a and it's a, sort of a dark satire, absurdist literary genre. You mentioned Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller.
0: Dylan mentioned that.
4: Oh, I'm sorry. Did um, forgive me if that is the case. I brought it up. Okay. I don't
5: know if I was the only one too, though.
4: Okay, okay. <laughs> but well, both of you guys jump in. So that was a 1961 novel, and mm-hmm. Kurt Vonnegut and Heller um, knew each other. I don't know where they met a writer's workshop, or whatever they, they considered each other friends, but, uh, obviously, um, Star Wars five comes out, um, you know, seven, eight years later. And, um, you know, it becomes famous too. And it's also satirical. And some people are like, Hey man, you stole from, uh, Heller. Mm-hmm. Although to me, you know, it's sort of like comparing, uh, you know World War One novels like *The Razor's Edge* to *Farewell, Arms*. Yes, they're both about you know the uh, the war and the aftermath and stuff like that. But they're they're actually pretty different in some ways, even though they might both fall into that absurdist genre. But what do you guys think? I mean, was he stealing?
0: Dylan? <laughs> you have you guys uh,
5: jump in. Oh, I I I, I, d- I doubt it. If they were, okay. like, friends, I'm sure they shared ideas and notes and stuff, and they might have influenced each other, but I think this is something like a, I don't know, a John ford akira Kurosawa relationship, where one you know, got an <laughs> idea, and the other one
1: Whoa. does
5: the idea and puts out a new idea, and then the other one does that idea. Like, they, they're all, they're just kind of working off each other at best. They're not stealing. Bringing in that Ebert insight. Okay. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no but um, you, no you're right i mean yeah because the whole thing the driving thing in catch-22 is the guy like keller was was a bombardier and the deal was you only had to fly so many missions and then they sent you home and they yeah. kept extending the time right on them and that was what was like driving him insane. whereas um Vonnegut, as a real person, was only a uh, private for class. And he was, you know, a prisoner of a completely different experience. You know, he never saw Mm -hmm. the inside of a plane. He was a prisoner of war. You know, the whole Dresden thing was. I mean, that's what Heller's people were doing, dropping bombs on people. And Vonnegut was the recipient of people like that. I mean, it was the Americans and the British who firebombed Dresden. Yeah. It wasn't the Nazis.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: so i don't know if you guys want to throw in anything extra
0: okay so my take on it is that in in literature there is no stealing Mm
5: -hmm. okay that
0: the job the job of a writer (laughs) the job of a writer is to steal uh Mm. and if vonnegut stole from joseph heller then he was doing something smart um (laughs) And another, like another example of this that I would point to is uh, James Boswell's biography of Samuel Johnson, which is considered the greatest biography.
4: The lexographer
0: Samuel Johnson.: Yes. He made the first the di- English dictionary.:
4: dictionary Yes, right? so the life okay. of
0: Samuel Johnson is considered like one of the greatest biographies of all time. Wow. And James Boswell just hung out with him for like decades to try to write this biography. And he waited a really long time to finally publish it. And a bunch of other people in the meantime came out with biographies and people at the time criticized him. They were like, your book's never going to be shit. So many people, other people have published books about it. Um, And when he finally came out, he was able to steal from the insights that all the other people have had and connect them and like come to a, a greater understanding. Uh, so, I don't know if Kurt Vonnegut stole from Joseph Heller. I know that in a review that I read of So It Goes, the the Vonnegut biography, the reviewer took it upon himself to <laughs> analyze all of the weird symbioses between Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller, like the fact that Catch-22 and Slaughterhouse-Vive are both like word number titles.
5: Two syllables. Exactly.
0: And they pointed out all of these weird relationships between their two lives. Right. Like um the way that people do about the the Lincoln assassination and the Kennedy assassination. Sure, sure. So they were like, Oh, you know, the town that when Kurt Vonnegut went to visit that, that but war buddy of his. Yeah. He lived in a town called Heller's Town. <laughs> oh, wow. So, like, a bunch of random things. Oh, like my that.
4: God. It's, like, cra- <laughs> crazy Hindu stuff going on, crazy <laughs> stuff. Although, what you know, Heller uh, Hiller was celebrated like Salinger, and then his career kind of went off a cliff, whereas Vonnegut's career, even though one could argue the quality of the writing uh, was not at, at the level it was in the first six books... His, he just kept going up. It's like he could do 100%. no wrong. Even he could. Everybody could give him a hateful review like slapstick, and he would still make $5 million, and they'd make a Hollywood movie about it. <laughs> Not Heller, exactly. though. He only got one movie, and that was it. Nobody yeah, remembers that, his other books, right?
0: I think that is one of the main takeaways that any – uh, aspiring writers listening to this podcast could take away from the career of Kurt Vonnegut, which is the power of branding.
4: Sure. Because,
5: okay.
0: Because after Slaughterhouse 5, Kurt Vonnegut really learned how to brand himself.
5: Okay. As, He's a weird looking author. dude. He could do that.
0: Yes. And like, your, your look matters po- a lot.
5: Grab the Slaughterhouse 5 copy. There's always on the back, they have a little drawing of him. Um True. And I, I always the, like I picture that instead of like the actual picture of Vonnegut when I think of Vonnegut. I think of that little sketch of it.
0: Interesting. And I Interesting. that's well. like
5: something According to that
4: autobiography that you mentioned, Cassia, and so it goes by uh, charles shields Biofasia. he so uh, Vonnegut goes you know he's in his whatever mid forties goes to that Iowa workshop thing he's still basically looking exactly like he looked since he was nineteen with the crew cut and you know the skinny tie and every which would be like popular now but but in you know. Nineteen sixty-five <laughs> was probably kind of douchey, and then, but he, like you say, he totally when once he started realizing that he was not here, he was in this great writing program, and he's seeing all these young people. He's like, wow! Then he gets this freaking afro, changes his whole vibe, you know, his whole look, his whole feel. Yeah, but Cassie, you're an author. Dylan, are you an author? I know you do a podcast. Absolutely not. <laughs> you're not? Okay. But Cassia no. is. I don't know if you're pra- – are you practicing what you preach? Oh. Uh... <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> I have plans to. Okay. Um, no, but one of the things that strikes me uh, when, re- when revisiting his books are these autobiographical prefaces.
6: And I I learned from the
0: biography that they were written post Slaughterhouse-Five. So the success of the autobiographical framing of that book compelled him to then go back and add a similar type of preface to the other books. And I think that leads to people really identifying with him as a character, as a friend, right? It helps people build that kind of parasocial relationship with him. And it bridges the like reader author divide in a way that people were really hungry for in the second half of the 20th century and would still be today. And so in a way, I think he really pioneered like a highly personal authorial persona that made him very successful critically and I'm fi- not necessarily critically although audience success leads to critical success people kind of regard you for having been successful financially even if they they personally don't don't love you which is like the vibe <laughs> i get from most of the like professional critics uh that i have read of vonnegut
1: mm-hmm.
5: i have a question is, is there something to be said about becoming famous on your sixth book and having your past five be so similar that they can read those and then you're set. I'm not. Yeah. I can't, I'm trying to think of an author or director that could do that because then you don't have to make crap after that. You could just work off people yeah. going backwards almost. You'd like being unstuck in time and have that <laughs> big pivot point as Slaughterhouse- Well, five some people well. would
4: say he did – do crap after that. Um, Exactly. Yeah, some of the reviews have have said, well, well, you know, when they saw Slapstick and stuff like that, they were like, okay, well, that proves that everything that came before was bullshit. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, but, I mean, some people did at the time. Sure.
0: Yeah, he himself said that, like, I didn't need to write shit after Slaughterhouse-Five. I was set. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think as a person, that's where we, you know, the person of Kurt Vonnegut and the career of Kurt Vonnegut kind of part ways. Because I don't think he could really survive without having books to work on.
5: Is, is Vonnegut a bit like Hitchcock? I'm trying to think of like a director. A I literally
0: thought of that, Dylan, where he, yes, he puts, he inserts himself into the yeah. book. And, and you're again, kind of you almost... You could
5: see uh, he has that drawn outline that is... So famous, yes, and, and
0: it's
5: a yeah, it's it's profile. a profile, like, yeah, and um, the
0: profile image.
5: You know, he his works are f- more famous in retrospect than they were at the time, or at least acclaimed. I would say.
0: Yeah, and he he said to somebody, a friend, or in a letter near the end of his life, he was like, "The only way I can become regarded for my early works again is uh, to die."
5: There you go. Borders let that and come And that's true. true.
0: And Borders made it happen.
4: Let's talk about the novel Breakfast of Champions, if you guys don't mind. I think, you know, it was the first one I read, first one Cassia read. I think you, Dylan, you said it was your second or third one. It came out in 1973, four long years after Slaughterhouse-Five. Now, Vonnegut was an idol in that time. In between, he wrote and produced two Broadway plays, which were poorly reviewed, but were financially successful. And in a 1971 article in the New York Times Magazine, the author writes, Vonnegut says repeatedly he is through writing novels after Slaughterhouse-Five. Vonnegut began work on a novel called Breakfast of Champions about a world in which everyone but a single man, the narrator, is a robot. He gives it up, however, and it remains unfinished. I asked him why he gave it up, and he said, because it was a piece of shit.
6: (laughs) Breakfast of Champions is set predominantly in the fictional town of Midland City, Ohio, and focuses on two characters. Dwayne Hoover, a Midland resident, Pontiac dealer and affluent figure in the city, and Kilgore Trout, a widely published but mostly unknown science fiction author. It covers the events that lead up to the meeting of Kilgore Trout and Dwayne Hoover, the meeting itself, and the immediate aftermath. After their fateful meeting, Trout becomes successful and wins a Nobel Prize, Hoover is going insane and is sent over the brink by his encounter with Trout. Breakfast of Champions deals with themes of free will, suicide and race relations, among
4: others, I, w- I would say to you guys, so the Vonnegut in, in, in his first autobiography collage grades all of his books and he grades Breakfast of Champions with a C, unlike uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, which got an A+. However, it did remain on the New York Times bestseller list for 58 weeks and broke many publishing records. It may it confirmed if he wasn't already a millionaire, he was a multi-multi-millionaire mm-hmm. now after Breakfast mm-hmm. of Champions. So, it got mixed reviews, but the public liked it. Uh, it. It put the hook in my mouth. Maybe you guys like it. I mean, what do you guys think of the book now from the perspective of
5: your 20s? Kasi, I want you to go first on this one.
0: Okay. Well... I think that just looking back on my younger recollections of Kurt Vonnegut, I would have said that Breakfast of Champions was my number one, was my mm-hmm. peak, was my favorite. And in just in preparation for this episode, trying to read it again, I found very painful <laughs> and difficult to get into. And I don't... I, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it doesn't hold up. I don't necessarily think that my perspective now is more valid mm-hmm. than my perspective then. Uh, if we're gonna be unstuck in time or whatever, yeah, you know, like a, a kid's perspective or a younger, a younger youthful perspective is just going to be enthusiastic and just so excited to have this validation of, like, an older, smarter person telling you that the world is just full of bullshit and it's a hoax and, like, here's all these jokes and, and like, we're just going to have fun with it, you know? And I think that's a great thing. It's just, like, the the point that I'm at now is just that's not really what I want to read. But I don't think that means it's a bad book. And I don't think that my limited earthling perspective in my late 20s now is is higher than Mm -hmm. my more youthful perspective well and the
4: other thing uh, you know in rereading the book myself i had forgotten that there's an entire section where he confronts for one of another phrase racism in the midwest and he uses the n-word and it's clear At least to me, it seems clear that he's he's criticizing the racist viewpoints of people in the Midwest. And yet he does use the N-word about as much (laughs) as Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle. I mean, like a hundred times. So so like, yeah, exactly. You're right, right, right. Samuel Jackson in uh, in uh, Johnny Brown or whatever that was. Jackie Brown. I mean, it was. Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown or Django Unchanged or whatever. It's just N-word, N-word, N-word. And I I just think a modern, like someone your age who is truly African-American, reading this would be like, holy shit, this old fucking white guy. I mean,
6: Mm -hmm. that's
4: going to be hard for people to get through, I think. Even though it's, I, I think it's clear that he's what he's trying to do, but I don't know you know it's hard yeah. to, to um do
5: again that. i think this comes back to Casia's uh point about um just the uh language of the time which simultaneously doesn't need yeah. to be yeah. inexcusable but at the same time just needs to be like this is just how it was even even if it's bad like we could talk about how it's bad it this is just how it was um and we have to look at it a little bit through that lens um so
4: yeah, I mean, I was alive in 1973. I didn't read this book until 77 sure. or something like that. But, but, but at least I was alive then. I was living in quote unquote the north, either Michigan or Illinois. When someone says 1973 to you guys, you probably think, oh, was that Woodstock or something? I mean, was that going to the moon? I mean, that was like – it was almost like it was like, oh, that that's, sounds like the Civil War That's when the Godfather won the Oscars. That's my favorite exactly, reference. Exactly. It's just like c- completely out of conception. It's just totally a historical thing in a, in a book, right? You cannot possibly – I mean, you guys remember 2000, uh, you know, the 9-11 thing. You'll probably remember that. But that actually happened in your lifetime. This is like 30, 40 years before that.
0: I think another thing about this book and about Kurt Vonnegut in general is just how obsessed he is with the idea of America and really assuming an American readership and talking about Americans – as a type of person, which I don't know that today writers in English would do. Because when you're writing in English, you're really speaking to a lot more people, hopefully, than just Americans. And So does that
4: just mean there was a atmosphere of nationalism in a time of war, you know, Vietnam, and, and just the, the dominance of the United States? I mean... Obviously, we don't have that dominance now, but maybe forty, fifty years ago, uh, the United States had more dominance on the world stage than we do today.
0: Yeah, probably a, like a post World War II landscape, and also right. the publish the publishing industry being super siloed uh, into countries, which it still right. kind of is, but. It's it's
4: changing though. I mean, we have so much. Yeah, it's changing. It's
0: changing, but like he'll he'll say things like, "This is from Breakfast at Champions." Go ahead. I think I am trying to make my head as empty as it was when I was born onto this damaged planet 50 years ago. I expect that this is something most white Americans and non-white Americans who imitate white Americans should do. Wow. So like a, a, a an excerpt like that kind of assumes that Americans are white, no. which I don't know that you could do today, right? It kind of is like, well, there's white Americans and then secondary to that are all the non-white Americans who are trying to say?: No, in.
5: no, absolutely you can't, not.
0: you can't do that anymore. You no! Flat no. out You can't just say
4: that 36% of the people are America. That's yeah. That's not it. You know, and people could, would consider me Caucasian, but, you know, I grew up being told by nuns that, oh, well, I'm not white because I'm sure. Polish. So (laughs) I'm Asiatic, can't be white. Okay, I didn't know what that meant in first grade. (laughs) It took me uh, 10 years to figure that one out.
0: But, you know, um,
4: yeah, no, it's nuts. It's nuts.
0: I know, but it it goes uh, to show how, like, Vonnegut has been alive within my lifetime, and yet his oeuvre has to be read with these kind of, like, the special lens of historical analysis Because America has changed so much since the period in which his most influential work was written,
4: but almost every American author does, don't they? And maybe not every author in history, but I'm thinking of all the, you know, the the Hemingways or the Faulkners or the Poes or I mean, there's no, I think Herman
0: Melville, Melville too. Melville stands up pretty Melville does well. stand
4: up because
0: yeah. he almost he's like his best friend is, is a
4: yeah yeah
0: yeah like he he comes to a kind of like Kid kind of,
4: is is the main Quink, guy like, I mean exactly yeah with the tattoos with all the shit yeah that was so it,
0: progress is not really a straight line it's kind of up and down
4: but okay so you guys are. Young people in your 20s, much younger than me, obviously, and very smart people. (laughs) Thank you for calling me smart. Well, (laughs) 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 one of the things that distinguishes Breakfast of Champions from, you know, all of his other books. I mean, yes, Slaughterhouse-Five had this unique, non-linear organization, but, but... Now he goes full goose bozo on what I would later learn was a term called metafiction. Now, I only heard that term 10 plus years ago. I mean, when when we were studying him in high school, they would refer to Dada, avant-garde, theater of the serb, postmodernism, you know, and in film school, Vonnegut was compared to like Jean-Luc Godard. But you know, and that was the mid 80s. But I really mm-hmm. only heard that term like 10 years ago. But so I didn't even know what it meant. <laughs> I had to look it up in Google. <laughs> what, what is metafiction? But that's that's the way, like, look up anything now, anything contemporary. They'll say, the father of, you know, one of the fathers of the grandfather of metafiction. I mean, what do you guys, what is metafiction, guys? I Someone explain to it that. to me. <laughs> Kasia, come on. Okay, you're, so- you're a uh, professor to be at Harvard. <laughs>
0: Um, I'm more just like a really passionate like street corner reveler who's like shouting. Great. You're going to be people. on
4: a uh, one of those guys down at the mall on July 4th with a with a Yes. Bullhorn. They are my
0: role okay. models. Those are my role models. Okay. So Sinners this were kind paying. of dips into one of my pet peeves, which okay. is people in the world of literary criticism coming up with... Words to describe things that have always taken place and that are inherent in like the project of fiction, and yet just trying to brand it f- for a particular generation of writers. I think one of the great books that kind of attacks this shibboleth of metafiction as being a 20th century invention is Yikes. the novel. Uh, the we'll novel have to put
4: that in the notes if you can spell it.
0: The novel. <laughs> The Novel and Alternative History by Stephen Moore, which basically mm. argues that the history of the novel and of fiction as an art form has always been experimental. That is it's true tradition, and that it's only like some Oxford dons with like elbow pat patches and like tweed jackets that created this kind of corrupted history of the medium that we now hold which is like oh people just started like authors just started putting themselves in books in like the 20th century which is not true it's like (laughs) Don Quixote like the whole book is an insane like commentary on the idea of people that are literature obsessed and obsessed with with writing and there's like false authorship and different layers of reality so I think that's what writers have done since the beginning of writing well no you're i mean i mean you look
4: greek theater the choruses shakespeare has got guys like walking in and saying okay everybody (laughs) you know Henry yeah. yeah
0: artists artists have always used as a technique alerting the audience to the unreality of their own artifice as a technique for like kind of endearing themselves to the audience and getting closer and, like, puncturing what stands between them. So every, every once in a while, people come up with a new word for this. Uh, I think the, exact, the word metafiction came in the 1970s from William Gass, as Wiki- mm. Wikipedia informs <laughs> me. Okay. But, like, Kurt Vonnegut is also... You could say that he's doing autofiction, which is a very contemporary term. Like, people are using that now to describe writers like Carl Ova and Sheila Hetty and Teju Cole. And Vonnegut does, like, this is a very autobiographical book, Slaughterhouse-Five. And, and he actually is in it, right? He says, oh, I saw Dresden. The only other city I'd seen before was Indianapolis. He puts himself right in there, even mm-hmm. though we can also kind of presume that he's also Billy Pilgrim. So he puts himself in there maybe multiple times. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that terms like metafiction or terms like autofiction are super useful to a serious critic of literature because writers have always done that. And like the palette of literature is more complicated than um the terminology of like the critic of the Do day. Do you think the there's something to say
5: about like terminology catches on and becomes cool like using the term metafiction because someone comes up with it and then people start making that sort of thing, very casual, and throwing it into things where it's like, like, is it cause, is is it popular because like Deadpool talks to the camera now or something, and then everyone's like, hey, that's metafiction,
4: right? <laughs> oh
5: my god, what a great example! Which I would, you know, thank God for your podcast.
4: I'm gonna to have to listen to. It. I love Deadpool. I love Deadpool. I laughed laugh my ass off. You're right. I mean, it's basically he's Kurt Vonnegut. In a in a spandex with muscles, you don't even
5: have to be Deadpool, (laughs) but just like, oh, let's make a reference to that movie we all know, and like that will be able to like break the fourth wall in a way of like, hey, we're using metafiction to connect to a popular audience in a casual way. Um, right, right, which we know intuitively. I mean, you don't
4: like, uh, you know, uh, Didn't you and I watch Jean-Luc Godard's um, Every Man for Himself? You know, and, like, the main characters, like, walk, like, you hear the underscoring when one of the characters dies, and then they end up walking past the orchestra <laughs> playing the underscoring. I mean, <laughs> you know, of course, and The Lost Weekend, too, where, they, where the wife ends up eating her husband. But, um, I mean, this shit has been going on I love forever. That. I know, yeah. I love that one, It's too.
0: been going on forever. And so it's been going I on forever. The argument for the word is that it it creates a Exactly that like a, uh... to discuss something really interesting like like okay we're we're pegging this conversation about Kurt Vonnegut on a documentary but it's not yeah. really about the documentary, right? In no, right? no. It's really it's, just about something that's universal. Yeah. No,
4: it's yeah. an occasion to, to speak on exactly. the matter. So I yeah. think
0: if you understand the word as a as an occasion and not as like, oh, this is an actual invention. Like we invented <laughs> fire in the 20th century and Kurt Vonnegut was the man. It's like, nah, yeah. like he, he's in a tradition. Uh, as long as you can like hold both those ideas at the same yeah, time. Yeah, but I think I it
5: catches think, on because people don't hold that in the their heads at the same time because they make movies about or they make youtube videos about like how brilliant you know deadpool was because they use the term metafiction because he talks to the camera okay now you're just
0: provoking. but that's how
5: this stuff catches on is because people want to sound cool and they use it to sound cool and then other people that want to be cool see that and are like i'm going to use that term now
0: i think that's probably true
4: Okay, so I'm going to move (laughs) things along to another topic, which is – no, I mean we've got – we're working on a two-hour episode here. So (laughs) it's uh, the Lawrence of Arabia of podcasts um, (laughs) with intermission. So I wanted to talk about – because I think this is sort of a kind of a key in the Vonnegut gene pool – is this history of mental illness – I mean, what do you guys think about that? We'll, we're going to jump into it, but I mean, any initial I thoughts? Think,
5: I think he has an interesting perspective on it, but I'm not sure he regularly has a good grasp on how to portray mental illness, which might be the, the, his entire overt, but um, yeah, it, it's definitely something that literally haunts him personally and literally, literarily. I, right. I don't know what the right word is there, but in his work and in mm-hmm. his personal life. Sure.
6: Kit's mother, Edith, was being treated for depression with prescription medication, when she committed suicide on Mother's Day, the day before Kurt was to be inducted into the The United States Army in 1945. Kit's firstborn son, Mark, was institutionalized for schizophrenia in 1962. However, after being treated with various drugs and shock therapy he eventually obtained a medical degree and became a practicing doctor. Mark wrote a book about his experiences with bipolar disorder called, Eden Express, which became a bestseller. Then in 1984, at the age of 62, he attempted suicide himself with pills like his mother. Obviously unsuccessful, as he lived another 22 years.
4: So, but what does that, okay, so this this thread of mental illness and suicidal tendencies in the Vonnegut family, what does that tell you, does that inform you about Kurt Vonnegut in any way?
0: Well, I think that, like, I don't love the 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 term mental illness. I think okay. it's almost what, like what one is of it? those. I just think it's one. What of was those sort the term terms. you would use? I think he suffered a lot of tragedy in mm-hmm. his formative years, and I think some of it was related to his mother's suicide, which you could call mental illness. But part of it was his sister Alice, mm-hmm. who he really loved and had a strong relationship with, and she died of cancer.
4: Untimely death, yeah.
0: And that wasn't mental illness, but I think that was a big part of, that was a tragedy that informed his kind of so-it-goes attitude.
4: And, and her, I mean, we should mention, it wasn't just the death of his sister, but his sister's husband had this unbelievable exactly. freak accident death within days of her death where he was yeah. on a commuter train that fell off a bridge and then he died. So, which is right. why, and even though he had yesterday. three kids, he ended up adopting their three kids. You know, losing <clears> his <throat> uh, beloved brother-in-law, beloved sister, and adopting their kids—crazy, crazy, crazy <laughs> life, right? And yeah. of course, that was the financial pressure that or caused Rosewater, him to write, which is a book um, about so many Pulp Fiction money. type things that he would later yeah. say were garbage for magazines like the Saturday Evening Post and Collier's. Although now we Aren't consider them classics. Sure. But he thought they were shit.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and su- suicide. Uh,
4: you mean God bless you, Mr. Rosar? Uh The guy in God bless you, Mr. Rosar, was insane. He keeps yeah. going back to insanity.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it is like a... Yeah.
4: He a always man, returns man. to insanity. That is quite a turn. That's, <laughs> That's quite See, a turn.
0: To use that expression. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Like, this is a tricky subject. I was actually reading uh, the introduction to a novel by another very tr- famili- familially troubled author I like called Ivy Compton Burnett. And in the introduction, they made the... Nadila knows what I'm talking about. They made this... Uh, here, I'll just read it. They make a very... F- ...familiar argument about, like, tortured writers, right? "'Scratch below the skin of any person, and a little blood will ooze, but scratch below the skin of most writers, and the blood will gush, and the wound will never properly heal. It is astonishing how many writers have suffered a significant bereavement, the loss of a parent or sibling in their childhood.' Faced with such overwhelming hurt, it is common for such wounded children to construct a carapace around themselves in an attempt to avoid feeling more pain. Ivy Compton Burnett was such a child. But you could just as easily say that Kervanegut was such a child, or X number of writers were such a child, right? And it's such an obvious point that we make about, like, troubled people leading to creative genius that I'm almost like hesitant to agree with. It becomes with
5: glorification it. in an awkward I way do at think, some point.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I don't like that part of it. But I also do think that someone has to be really motivated to kind of digest an experience. And the the Dresden thing was that experience for him, and obviously countless other American (laughs) males of his generation. But if you couple that with the war thing, plus him already having some kind of artistic temperament, then you start... I think if it's like one factor that you add up to three, four, five other factors, then it explains.
4: Well, I was going to say, because we had been talking about attempted suicide... Two things, and maybe I'll cut this out. In his, uh, this wasn't in the last rundown, in his, in Vonnegut's second autobiographical collage from 1992, it was called Fatesworth and Death. He describes a book he attempted to write but finally abandoned. The working title was SS Psychiatrist. It was about a doctor the Nazis sent to Auschwitz to treat. The prison staff, the guards, right, who can't deal with what is going on. Like, so many people are being taken off. There are severe depressions, massive panic attacks, frequent suicide attempts. Kind of an interesting topic.
5: Bold move. Yeah, it is. So he was working on that that when he he passed? Gotcha. No, no. It was something he was
4: was doing in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had abandoned. Yeah, he abandoned. So I'm going down this list of famous American authors who have either committed suicide or sort of lent their lifestyle toward that. So we're a relatively <laughs> young country, so it's a very short list. I mean, many of the people who I'm going to mention, I was required to read in, in high school. Of course, the top of the list is Ernest Hemingway, who literally blew his own head off with his favorite double-barreled shotgun in his mouth at the tender age of only 61. I mean, talk about going out with a bang. Literally, and I guess <laughs> in his machismo vibe, you got to go out big. Today, I mean, way to go. So, <laughs> Right. But, but then there, and then there's so many others that took a sort of a slower, easier way out through either drugs and alcohol or other less painful strategies than actually blowing your head off, like Edgar Allan Poe, F. Scott Fitzgerald, William Faulkner, Sylvia Plath, Anne Sexton, and the list goes on and on. But my question to you, especially you, Cassia, as a published author yourself, and I assume aspiring to do more, is there a way To be a successful author in America without being completely nuts. And by successful, I don't mean just one sells (laughs) books like Dan Brown. I mean, you know, you're recognized as a writer, a contributor to a culture, and and maybe a Nobel Prize winner. I mean, Vonnegut would say that himself. It's like, do you have to be suicidal to be a Nobel Prize winner in America? Is there a way?
0: Yes, I think there are absolutely... There absolutely is a way. Okay. Um, I don't like to subscribe to any like (laughs) toxically romantic or negative ideas about creativity or writing. I do think that
4: is it romantic to commit suicide? Do you? I think some people think
5: that? that.
0: Romantic is in like yeah. capital R, like the movement of romantic- like brooding okay. over a mountain, kind of romantic.
4: Well, that's like Fitzgerald, but not Hemingway, right? Or
0: well, Fitzgerald just sort of like slow, yeah, cl- slowly killed himself with drink. Right. He didn't just like <laughs> go out like I'm gonna kill myself. But I, w- yeah, it was like a death of despair, probably. But but he knew
4: what he was doing, right? I mean, he was told time and time again, stop drinking, stop cocaine, stop smoking five packs of cigarettes. I mean, he knew what was going on and then he just didn't stop.
0: Or he couldn't.
4: Or he couldn't. I mean, same with Faulkner. I mean, same with so many other people. I mean, that's just the thing. You know, and the thing about Vonnegut is that, uh, and I guess, I don't know. It was the strength of his gene pool because he smoked four packs of cigarettes a day, like we do at the beginning. We do right up to the day of his death. And he was a very he was he he would never admit to being an alcoholic, but everybody that knew him would say he was an extraordinarily heavy drinker and would drink to blackout almost every well, night. One
0: of his his kind of greatest his hits jokes from his okay. lecture tour phase was he right. would say. I've been smoking his cigarettes since I was, like, in the fourth grade. And Thirteen. The package, yeah. the package always promised to kill me, and it hasn't right. yet. And I'm going to mm-hmm. have a class action lawsuit against Paul Mall for not killing me yet. <sighs> this is such a <laughs> tricky subject, isn't okay.
5: it? I don't know. I'm sure there's been, you know, writers and directors who are not like that that are just as successful at creating good art. It's just... I think people like to publicize and romanticize that aspect of being a writer and putting your pain on a page. And um, then people come to the assumption that's the only way you can do it, which is not true.
0: Yeah, and I think that a lot of Vonnegut's issues near the end of his life had to do with, again, the way that he had treated his, his children and his marriages. And mm-hmm. he felt a lot of guilt over it. Yep, and uh, that could and the really... second wife
4: was a complete total bitch.
0: And the yeah, and the second wife, well, yeah, she's portrayed as being sorry totally about that crazy, yeah, and so that could be just as true if if he was an architect like his father, or if he mm-hmm. was any other profession. You know, men will escape. Men of his generation or any generation will escape into being like workaholics so as to not have to engage with family life or emotions whatsoever. And then they feel the kind of equal and opposite negative effect effect of what they've done. And it's something that they struggle to come to terms with in older age when they can't, there's no more recourse. You can't do anything to fix it. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily because the writer, I think anybody could... could go through what he went through at the end of his life. But we just know about him because he's creative.
4: Uh, As we kind of like segue near the end of this. So uh, you guys may disagree with me. You indicated maybe you would. Um, My personal observation is that after he died, his Vonnegut's reputation seemed to rapidly fade away. So, you know, when I I, I sort of Googled everything, uh, like, uh, you know, the syllabuses of... Uh, high schools and colleges, you know, much older American writers, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Salinger, Henry James, Faulkner, continue to be included today in the syllabuses of, you know, current English courses. Even Thomas Pynchon, a contemporary writer, makes an occasional appearance. But Vonnegut seems to have disappeared. So, Has anything happened to his reputation or am I dead wrong?
5: I don't know about wrong or right. I know I never got assigned Faulkner, Hemingway. There was another one you just mentioned that I never, ever, ever saw in school. But I saw Vonnegut two or three times. Oh, really? Okay. You never had to read Great Gatsby? Great Gatsby, yes, but Hemingway, Faulkner, and I'm sorry, I can't... There was another one that you said. I was like, I never did that. Thomas Pinchin, Pinchin. Uh, Crying of Lot 49. I actually had okay. no idea who Pynchon was when I read Crying of Lot 49, and that I was not expecting what I got into, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that one's reputation fading away is synonymous with being excluded from syllabi. In fact, your reputation may improve as a result of your not being in. <laughs> <laughs> Formal education. <laughs> like, that, that's not necessarily linked. And I, you know, I read, I had to read The Great Gatsby in right. School, and I read Hills Like White Elephants yeah. or whatever, a short right, right. story, by yep. Hemingway. I never had to read Henry James. I never had to read Fa- Faulkner. I never read Vonnegut, Salinger, or Pinchot. Mm. And yet, all of those names conjure something po? special You must have read Poe. I read Poe. I'm sure I read a poem or something. Yeah. Yeah, the Cask but of a whatever. They, what they, I they read. get kind of passing mention. Yeah,
5: I mean that was it.
4: It was a, mm-hmm. cl- it's the classic.
0: But I mean, the guy's 150 years old. <laughs> but people are. But look, like I was never assigned Vonnegut. But I thought you it's did get Vonnegut. Down. And I.
5: From the man right there.
0: No, never. No,
5: only by her father. Oh, from
0: my father. You know, that doesn't with, count. With
5: you know, <laughs> bribed by a banana
4: split with chocolate sauce. <laughs>
0: I'm so, which I'm still so waiting.
4: <laughs> you have your seats. You got one for you got one for the seventh seal. I don't know what you're complaining about.
0: <laughs> it's one each. Uh. On. Um, my name is Jan Janssen. I live in Wisconsin. I work in a lumber yard there. The people I meet, as they say, "What's your name?" I say, "My name is Jan Janssen. I live in Wisconsin."
4: Well, okay. Well, do you guys think Vonnegut is relevant today? I mean, you guys are still in your twenties. Maybe you're not in your early twenties. Maybe you're in your late twenties. But is he relevant today? And if not, should he
5: be? Um, I think he. I don't. I don't know if he is. I think he's still relevant. Um, I think he relevant as far, far as Faulkner is relevant nowadays. But should he be? I. Really? Necrophilia in the
4: South, in the East yeah. Reconstruction area?
5: <laughs> I don't
0: know. I, speaking of someone from the South. Well, technically
5: we are. Yeah, you are. You're a Virginian. It never away. Um, should he yeah. be? I think every great author should always be relevant, whether or not their work holds up or not simply to understand what the work was from those days in those time periods. You know, I don't think <clears throat> we necessarily should be proclaiming like the birth of a nation as like the greatest movie ever. But DW Griffiths still did like a corner of wheat, which is mm. a, a pioneering mm. tale of like what the, the, the horrors of capitalism and, The strength of, you know, collective earnings could be in a system of farming, which is incredibly relevant into today's society. I don't think we should ever eliminate someone for being of a time period because we will still lose the impact they could have on us today, either understanding that time or what they could do to our time.
4: Wow. Good point. Mr. (laughs) Ebert person. I'm just Um, (laughs)
0: going
5: to be my (laughs) alias for this podcast. (laughs) No, go ahead, go, go for it, go for it, <laughs> Mr.
0: Ebert, what do you think yeah okay, so i I kind of think that the whole point of writing a novel is mm-hmm. to escape the is this to escape time, it's to escape the pressures of being relevant today or yesterday or with a particular editor at a some kind of magazine or a publishing group or whatever, and so. That's what literature does, and one of the definitions of the classic is that it never stops saying what it has to say, no matter what age. So I don't don't like when we go through the Trump era and people start talking about Orwell and they're like, it's never been more relevant because it was always equally relevant. It's as equally relevant. If Trump is president, if Obama is president, it's always relevant. And so that's the whole idea of literature to me. That's the point. That's why we have books that are are holding their secrets for us if we care to crack into them and and look for them. And so I think Vonnegut does have a lot to contribute and he had a particular angle on events that still they have a popular conscience but even after that has faded, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, they'll still be historically relevant. So yeah, although I take a lot of issue with his, for instance, his view of women or his take on race. I or his legit general <laughs> childlike <laughs> worldview. <laughs> I still think that I still think that he has something to say and that anyone would benefit mm-hmm. from reading him.
4: Okay.
5: She said what, what I was trying to say better than I could say it, so I'm just gonna keep silent now. I'm
0: not
4: oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> so, what uh, if you saw the rundown in the throughout uh, three times in the introduction of Salt House Five, and then in a couple of other places in the the text of the book, there is this. scandinavian song that goes back many many hundreds of years came to america in 1800s in english which is called my name is jan jansen so can you tell me what you guys think the reason he did this i know what i read in the new york times and i can you know vomit that out but i just thought maybe you guys might have your own
5: ideas Cassia, you just read it. You go first. I'm I'm gonna need a second to think.
4: I think. I mean, it's when the, you were reading rec- it, Cassia, yeah, the recursive stuff. Yeah,
0: the recursiveness, and also, it's the kind of uh, thing that a kid would mm-hmm. sing on the playground. That you exactly sing on the bus which was coming back from a softball game or whatever, and that's and the subtitle of the book is a ch- the children's crusade. And these are children. Right? And, 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 and so it's right, not in the
4: opening way- notes, I was comparing it to the song. Like you said, like on a bus, going to a field trip, everybody in the fourth grade elementary school thing on the way to the Cahokia Mounds where we were going to see the Indian stuff. You know, everybody would just sing. Now it wasn't this song. It was another song that was recursive, that just endlessly repeated. John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. That's my a name banger. too. Whenever I go out, everybody da, 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 shout, John da, 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 Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. And then we just go on over and over for two hours, and then eventually our teacher would take out a pistol and
5: blow. <laughs> there our there are songs up. But, <laughs> unstuck from time. You know, like but, Billy Pilgrim would go to like one era and be like, Wait, "Okay, yeah, God, they're singing John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith 200 years later." You know.
0: And their collective, mm. which is something that Vonnegut really harped on, which was this idea yeah, of extended family and creating an extended family. And maybe part of it is because he <laughs> was an absent father in many ways. But like <laughs> it, it gives you this. It's like doing the wave at a baseball game or something. It, it gives right. you
5: this kind
0: of chilly thrill of like, oh, yeah, I'm part of the, the club
4: he loved extended families but exactly is, More is than his own family since and and this was really part of Slaughterhouse 5 he didn't really do this exact same thing in the other books but since billy pilgrim was basically caught in he kept i mean he ever, i mean he experiences death over and over and over again but he's just caught in an endless loop right that he experiences of, uh, essentially for eternity, right? He never he never gets an end, and, and the cue to this to me was okay. This kind of a thing in culture where you know it's almost like a Calvinist priest let's go Calvinist uh, uh, mm. predestination kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah let's go right. Calvinist! Let's <laughs> go Scotland. <Yeah. laughs>
5: so. That's kind of what it sure. said to that's a, me. That's a good point. Yeah. Do you think Vonnegut gets stuck for a yeah.
0: Consolation.
5: Do you think he knew his death before? Did he... When he...
0: They try to... They try to say that in the biography. <sighs> that he had a premonition that he would Do always Do you think be he wrote
5: Peter Lazaro He did as say that. In Slaughterhouse-Five? Peter Lazaro. It's possible.
0: That's the guy who, ki- who kills him. Yeah, like kills him. Okay, the other
5: Does guy he who promises kill him to kill him on a him? street, okay. like by his house. Tracks him down. Yeah, he. No, I think I he's in a speech. Oh, he's giving a okay, speech, he? yeah, giving a speech kind of... about, yeah.
0: yeah. He's like, if you think death is a bad thing, you haven't listened to a word that I've said. Yeah.
5: Yeah. yeah. So his dog is Peter Lazaro.
4: Well, and look, I just want to thank, look, I uh, hope our audience enjoyed this. I want to thank both Cassia for coming back out of retirement from the Scandal sheet, Prod <laughs> Pass to, to join us on a one-off and for bringing her boyfriend and guest, uh, Dylan, to um, help us out. He's a big fan of Vonnegut as well. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you both of you. <laughs> Woo! Thanks
0: for having us.
4: Okay, cool.
1: A <laughs> bridged excerpt from And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life by Charles Shields. Kurt
0: was being discharged from the Army. Germany had surrendered. He arranged with his sister to be picked up on July 4th, 1945, at Camp Atterbury in Indiana, at 3pm. His welcoming party consisted of his father, Kurt Sr., his beloved sister Alice, and his uncle Alex. Three o'clock came and went, but still no Kurt. But there were thousands of GIs everywhere, also being discharged. Finally, they saw a tall lad approaching. Could it be Kay? those long legs. It must be. Alice ran to meet him, rushed into his arms, and kissed him. Now, no emotions, please, Kurt said. Nevertheless, his father hugged him, and Uncle Alex shook his hand warmly. Kurt said, let me drive the car.
1: Copyright 2022. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.